If you've got a Bible, join with me in turning to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. And uh, as you turn there, let me share a story from early in our marriage. Early in our marriage, Rose and I were um, visiting with my parents. We were at their home in Dallas, and I think it was a Saturday morning. Uh, Rose ended up going out with my mom for the day. They did different things, and while they were away, uh, my dad and I were kind of, it was, uh, I think it was fall. We ended up doing some yard work, raking leaves, cleaning up some limbs, and after a couple of hours, we kind of got it all done, and I was just excited at, at all we had accomplished, and I think I was in the process of putting the rakes back in the garage when I looked down at my left hand and to my utter horror discovered that my wedding ring was missing. Somehow in the midst of all the activity, it had slipped off my finger. Rose came back several hours later uh, with my mom and they pulled into the driveway to discover me with a rented metal detector. <laughs> Perusing the yard in vain because I never found that ring. I sometimes joke, my first ring was inscribed with a Bible verse. This ring is inscribed with, if found, please return to. <laughs> and it fits much tighter than the first one. Now, why do I tell you that story? Well, here's the reason I tell you that story. Uh, this morning, we're continuing our journey through the book of Hebrews. And it turns out uh, there is actually a Greek word that can be used to describe the experience of a ring sliding off your finger. And that term occurs in the passage that we are looking at this week. To show you what I mean, let me now take you to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. The author writes, We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, in what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. And that term used for drifting away is a term that can be used in a kind of a nautical setting, right? You can think about a, a ship that kind of drifts because it's not anchored, something, a, a boat getting caught in the current. But in some cases, apparently, the term could even be used for kind of a ring drifting off a finger, a ring slipping off a finger. And to understand what the author is getting at, let me, let me just remind you kind of the big picture of the book of Hebrews, and that is this. So the book of Hebrews is, is written to an early group of Christ followers, an early group of Christians who apparently became Christians out of a Jewish background. And we don't know all the details, but in different ways, their lives have now become complicated. They're, they apparently have felt some pressure, even some levels of persecution. And in the midst of their discouragement, their disillusionment, <laughs> their lack of energy, and all the things that have now become complicated in their lives, in the midst of all of that, they are now in danger, in essence, of going back to an old way of thinking, an old way of believing. They're in danger of, in essence, going back to the Old Testament law and saying, well, you know, we were really comfortable with this, and this made so much sense to us. Maybe this is really how we shape our lives, right? We believed in Jesus, but, but now that's kind of gotten complicated. Let's go back to what is deeply comfortable and normal and natural for us. And as the author 
describes the situation, foundationally he's going to highlight the significance and the superiority of Christ. That's a major theme of the book. But along the way, in different sections, we're going to hit warning passages. Passages that speak in very profound ways about the danger this church is facing. And passages that, in essence, are the application sections of this book. And when we come to chapter 2, we hit the first one of these passages. And in essence, the first statement of application, the first challenge, the first kind of clear directive from the author is this. Pay most careful attention to what we've heard so that you don't drift away. Now, as you think about that language, um, I think most of us have had... (laughs) had experiences of drifting before, right? I mean, just think, maybe at some point you've been in a, you've been in a lake, you've been at the ocean, maybe just kind of out on a raft or something, and you get caught in a current, and before you know it, you've moved, and you really, you didn't even realize how, wow, look how far I've gone, and you just didn't realize how strong the current was. Yesterday, Rose and I were hanging out with some young families, and we even Rose just kind of has shared a story from our own background where we were in one of those situations with our kids kind of out on a raft and before you know it, they had gone out too far and they'd kind of gotten caught in the current and a friend ended up having to go out on a jet ski to bring them back in and they drifted. Even as that can be true on holiday experiences, vacations, it can be true, for instance, relationally. My guess is, for many of us, if we're honest, we we could describe there have been certain relationships in our lives that maybe for a season were important. But you know, now we've just kind of drifted apart. People maybe that used to be important in your lives that are no longer an active part of your life. Maybe there are a variety of reasons for that. I mean, after all, like things like we went through COVID, there was greater isolation, and somehow it's, it's not like there was a dramatic moment, a dramatic point of conflict. We've just... We just drifted. And even, even as this can be true, you know, on a vacation day at the beach, even as it can be true with friends and family, so it can be true spiritually. And that, that's really what the author is warning us against, right? He's looking at these these people that they've become followers of Jesus, and it's pretty clear at one point there was a great deal of excitement, but now there's the danger of, of just drifting. And here's, think about this, here's the subtle danger of drifting. When you think about it, what does it take to drift? Absolutely nothing, right? In a variety of situations, it doesn't really take anything just to drift. You just kind of go with the flow. You just go with the current of your activities. You go with the current of busyness. You go with kind of the current of the kind of beliefs and views around you, the world in which we live, and you you end up drifting. I mean, there was never a dramatic moment in my dad's front yard where I pulled the ring off. I'm done with this, you know? It's just in the course of the busyness, it, it slipped off. That's drifting. And that's what the, 
That's what the author is warning us against. So, so what can this look like? I mean, what, what, what does spiritual drifting look like? Let me just give a, a couple of examples that I think are uh, examples really based on things that the author is going to say later in the book. Uh, I think part of the author's description of drifting based on things he says later is this. It's, one of the examples of drifting is just you, you become comfortable with sin. Right? It's just becoming comfortable with sin. You know, maybe over time I've just developed some unhealthy patterns of engaging other people. <laughs> you know, I, I'm prone to sarcasm or I quickly move to anger and I just become comfortable with that. Maybe over time I've developed some really unhealthy patterns of thinking. For instance, of letting that anger become bitterness internally and and it's just always below the surface. And it, it doesn't feel like a big deal because I'm not necessarily acting on it at times. But I've, I've just allowed it to build up in who I am. Maybe in some sense there's a deepening inconsistency between how I present myself to others and who I really am. And I just become fine with that. It doesn't feel like I've done anything dramatically wrong. And yet, over time, what may be happening, and I don't even realize it, is I'm, I'm just drifting, right? So the author can, can warn us about hardening our heart to sin. And it just, just becomes more natural, more comfortable. And it's not like there was some dramatic moment of rebellion or some dramatic personal failure. It's just that I've just drifted and becoming comfortable with sin. I think another example that the author uses is this. It's uh, just an example of, of drifting is kind of being unwilling to move forward. And here's, here's what I mean by that. Already this morning, we've encouraged you, right, as we start the new year, to think about what might be a next step for you, you know, ways to get connected, ways to serve, a next step in terms of things like baptism or membership. And again, I want to encourage you to think about that seriously. Now, why do we do this? Why do we encourage you to think about next steps? Is it just, is it just well, we just want a lot of people at different events? Is it just we want to fill your calendar with stuff? No. Something much deeper than that. Why do we encourage you to take next steps? Why is this actually one of the core values of our church? Because scripture tells us that, that, that to be on this journey of, of following Jesus is really to be on a journey where we are taking next steps. Interestingly, at different points in this book, I think the, the author taps into this theme that life is a journey. In fact, some describe it as a pilgrimage theme in the book of Hebrews. There are even scholars who have argued that that classic work, Pilgrim's Progress by Bunyan, right, where he talks about the journey of a Christ follower. Some have argued that historically that book is actually inspired by the book of Hebrews. So this author has this deep sense, look, you're on this journey of following Jesus. And later in the book, he'll say, look, I, I want you to run the race well. I want you to put aside, put aside all this stuff that keeps you from taking next steps and moving forward in this journey. Therefore, one of the ways 
that we start to drift is just being unwilling to move forward. So if at times, you know, I, I really become aware of, of a good next step for me, you know, it'd be, it would be good for me to, to really start using my gifts and abilities and start serving. It would be good for me to start really, you know, participating financially in the life of a church. It would be good for me to be attuned to opportunities Christ is giving me to share my faith with others. If I become a, attuned to those next steps and just say, no, not now, maybe later, I'm too busy, whatever. It may not feel like it at the time, but, but I'm actually in danger of just drifting. So becoming comfortable with sin, being unwilling to move forward. Kind of a third example that I would give that I think comes from this book of drifting is this. Giving up relationships. Later in the book, the author's going to talk about people apparently in the church that have, you know, They've given up meeting together. Probably a, a, different factors are related to that, and we'll talk about that when we get there. But they become disconnected. And even as that happened then, it can happen today. And tragically, here's what, here's what I see sometimes as a pastor. is just, you know, I think sometimes our lives get complicated or we start to feel the pressures of certain things in terms of our family, in terms of our job, in terms of our health. And, and for some, it feels like I'm supposed to come into this place and just have it all together. And if, if I don't have it all together, I'm not quite sure I can fit in and be honest with people. And tragically, I think one of the things Satan wants to do in our lives is convince us as we come into a church community is you're the only one that's dealing with stuff. And therefore, you can't, you can't talk about your stuff. You can't deal with that with others. And tragically, in the very moments, I think, when we most need the support, the encouragement, the wisdom, the prayers of other people, we can tend to withdraw and isolate ourselves. And at the time, it may feel like a good move. It may feel like a comfortable move. It may feel like a safe move. And I get all that. But what we may not be attuned to is it's, it can actually be a step in just drifting. And again, it's, it's not necessarily always dramatic, but we're, we're drifting. The last example I would give that it comes from the book that we'll see later in the book is this. I think another uh, example of drifting is just giving in when faced with hardship. As I said, there are signs in the book that, you know, in different ways, life has become complicated for these people while, because they've become Christians. That's been part of the, part of the reason we kind of want to go back to that which feels most safe and most comfortable and most convenient. And, and in the pages of this book, the author is very direct in acknowledging, you know, at times, hardship, complexity, even suffering will be part of the journey of following Jesus. So he says, don't, don't be surprised by that. Likewise, don't presume that God can't work through that. Don't presume that God is not walking with you in the midst of that. So don't just give in. 
Don't just give up in the face of that. Because when you do, again, whether you realize it or not, you may be drifting. So the author looks at this church, and in a real sense, he looks at us and says, look, don't drift. Don't allow yourself just to drift away from God. Don't allow yourself to simply drift away from the message of Jesus Christ. And I think the question then becomes, okay, you've given us this really powerful warning. Why should we take this seriously? Right? I mean, why, why do we need to pay attention to these words from this very ancient text? Well, in answering that question, what I want to do is just look at the argument the, the author makes because he's, got, he's already thought this through and he's got an answer for that question. And the answer comes as we continue reading this paragraph because here's how the paragraph continues. For, since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation. Now here's probably a helpful place where I think I need to just acknowledge the book of Hebrews is a really weighty and complicated book, okay? So if as we go through this book, if, <laughs> if at times it feels like you're getting lost, it's hard to track the argument, just, it's, you know, we're going to try in different environments to kind of deal with these questions and answer your questions. And this is why we're making resources available because this, this is a weighty, complicated book. So let me at this point just kind of slow down for a moment and, and let me try to explain the argument that the author is making here. And I want to do that with a couple of observations. You look at this and go, what on earth is he talking about, right? He's just said, he's just said, don't drift. And now he gives the argument for why that's important. And you may read this and go, I have no idea what he's talking about. Okay, <laughs> that's fine. Okay, let's just walk through it. Okay, here's the first thing I want you to notice. It's the, the argument he is making relates to the Old Testament law. Okay? When he says, the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment... He is talking about the Old Testament law. And remember, he is talking to people for whom the Old Testament law is now kind of their go-to place. This is where they, they have drifted back, or in they're in danger of drifting back to this is what we know. We know this is God's word. It's really comfortable for us to live this way. This makes sense to us. So we're going to come back over here. So all the author is going to be talking about and making his case is, is related to the Old Testament law. So first thing to observe is that the rationale for not drifting is related to the Old Testament law. Second thing to observe, the author uses a particular kind of argument. And interestingly, this, this is a, a, an argument that is very common in Jewish literature. It is sometimes referred to as an argument 
from the weaker to the greater. And here's, here's what I mean by that. The argument that the author is making is basically this. Look, you've come to receive God's law as the word of God. And you know its authority and its power. You're relying on that. You're confident in that. And if you are now relying on that, how much more should you rely on Christ because Christ is the ultimate and final word of God? You see how that works? If you believe in this and are confident in this, how much more should you believe and rely on that which is greater, which is now come? And of course, an underlying argument throughout the book, we're going to see this again and again and again, is the author showing how the Old Testament covenant anticipates the ministry of Christ and how Christ is ultimately superior to all that has gone before. So it's, a, it's an argument from the weaker to the stronger, from the weaker to the greater. Look, if this is valuable, how much more should this be? So, first thing I want you to see is this, this argument is about the law. The second thing is it's kind of an argument from the weaker to the stronger, highlighting the superiority of Christ. And then the third thing, now this is where this kind of gets a little wonky, it gets a little complicated, so you got to stay with me, okay? The third thing to notice here is that in proving the superiority of Christ to the Old Testament and the Old Testament covenant and the Old Testament law, the author taps into the theme of angels. For instance, you see it right here, right? The message spoken through angels. Now, this is going to generate a lot of questions, which I don't have the answer for. I'm just giving you the information, okay? In the pages of scripture, and we also see this in other Jewish writings, there is some recognition that the giving of the law involved angels in the angelic realm. We see that, right? We've just seen that in Hebrews. Let me show you, if we could go to the next slide. This is the speech of Stephen, right? The first Christian martyr in Acts 7 as he's talking, right, to He's telling the story, right, of Israel before he's martyred. And what does he say? You have received the law that was how? Given through angels, but have not obeyed it. Now you say, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? I, I, I don't know. Our detailed questions aren't always answered in the pages of Scripture. But what we do know is in some sense in the giving of the law, there was an angelic presence. There was an angelic participation. And Jews in the first century understood this. They, they, they had read that in the pages of, you know, there are a couple of places in Scripture where they had read and, and understood this. And so what the author is doing, this is a powerful argument to the people that are receiving it. What the author is saying is, look, I know you value the Old Testament law. And I know you understand that angels were part of the giving of the law. If you rely on that, how much more should you rely on the ultimate revelation 
of God's word who has come through Christ? And how much more should you rely on the one who is superior to the angels? Now, if you understand how the author is using this whole theme of angels, it will help you understand the flow of of the passage. Because if you remember, at the end of last week, we were looking at how the author describes Christ in Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. And the last thing we noticed was, the author says, well, Christ is superior to the angels. And then, if you continue reading in verse 5 of chapter 1 and read to the rest of the passage, what the author is going to do is he's going to quote Old Testament texts that anticipate Jesus. And along the way, he's using these Old Testament texts to argue Christ is superior to the angels. And if you read that, your first question is, why on earth is this guy all hung up about angels? And the answer is, or at least part of the answer is, (laughs) we understand angels as part of the giving of the law. And the fact that Christ is superior to the angels, the fact that Christ is anticipated in the Old Testament, shows us that Christ is now superior to that which has gone before. So that's the argument that this author is making. Now again, I realize maybe for us it's interesting to understand that, but it's like, well, I, you know, all this is stuff that just doesn't feel related to my life. I'm not wrestling with the same kinds of questions or levels of interest in the Old Testament law that these people were wrestling with. So let's just ask this question. How might the author have a similar conversation with you, with me, with us? Right? I mean, we're, we're not in danger kind of going back of, to the Old Testament laws if we feel really comfortable here and this is kind of what we grew up. That's not us. But how might this author have a conversation with us today? And to be honest with you, I think for some of us, at least for some of us, he might look at you, he might look at me, and he might say, look, I know, I know you've started this journey of following Jesus. For some of you, he might say, I, I, know, you've, I know there's an interest that you have in, in following Jesus, and, and you're in this phase of exploration. But he might also look at you and say, but you know, when we kind of deep down, when we dig deep down into kind of the reality of your life, the truth is, you're finding your sense of purpose, of meaning, of identity, and other things. And you've, you've kind of drifted back to things that maybe are really comfortable for you. You're kind of just going with the flow of the current around you. And you believe in Jesus, but the reality is at the core of who you are, what's really important is that next step in your career advancement or what's really foundational for you is achieving financial independence, financial success, or what's really at the core and what's really driving you is just the affirmation of certain people in your life. And he might look at you just like he looked at these ancient Christians and say, 
don't you realize something better is already here? Don't you realize the one bringing the ultimate and foundational answers to all of those questions is already here? So the author says, don't drift. Don't drift. So if if that's the warning, how do we take this seriously? Well, I think the answer is found right back in, I mean, the author just kind of gives us very clear instructions here. Go back to verse 1. What's the solution? Solution is found in that verse again. So if we could have the next slide. The solution is pay the most careful attention to what you've heard. Right? Do you see that? He said, here's the danger. The danger is that you just kind of drift away. The danger is you let this other stuff become comfortable in your life. The danger is that it's not like you're going to have a dramatic moment where you break away, but you just drift. But in order to avoid that, the solution is pay more careful attention to the message that we have heard. And the idea of paying attention here includes, I think, the idea, it actually anticipates some things he's going to say later in the book, that you need to hold on to this, grab hold of it, wrestle with it, come to terms with it, absorb this, you know, be driven and and empowered by this message. Don't let it go. And the message, of course, is the message of Christ. Since the opening paragraph, he's been highlighting the message of Jesus, who he is and what he's done. And then in, in the middle of the last chapter, beginning at verse 5, right, he started quoting Old Testament passages that anticipated the ministry of Jesus. And what he's doing already in chapter 1 is saying, look, this, the story of Jesus is actually rooted deeply in the pages of Scripture. The story of Jesus is rooted deeply in the promises of God. It's not just about this surprising character that appears on the stage of history for 30 years. This is deeply rooted in the storyline of what God is doing. So don't lose sight of that. Don't be distracted by that. I'd encourage you to, on your own time, kind of go back and look at these Old Testament passages that are quoted in chapter 1. But just let me just kind of briefly highlight the, the themes emphasized as the author kind of goes back to these Old Testament texts. So, among other things, in, in the middle of chapter 1, he is showing us that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. He quotes Psalm 2, which is a royal psalm. That is a psalm related to the ancient kings. It might have even included language that was used in royal coronations. He also quotes uh, 2 Samuel 7, which is God's promise to David that his household would be built as the king. And, And I think among other things, the author is using these ancient texts to show, you know, Israel had a kingdom, it had kings, and there were great promises associated with the kings, but ultimately, those promises were never fulfilled until the true king finally arrived. So Jesus is the 
Messiah and King. You continue in chapter 1, verse 6, and because he is the Messiah, the son of David, he is worthy of praise. Then we get to the kind of the next group of Old Testament citations, and there's an emphasis here, particularly coming from Psalm 45, on the idea that Jesus is a righteous ruler. So, um, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. So the author is saying, look, the, the promises of God are ultimately rooted in Christ, who is this righteous ruler. And can I... I think this is a theme we've got to we've got to wrestle with this more. Kind of the kingship of Christ. Because this can be where this can be where the message of Christianity really starts to mess with us a little bit. Because isn't it the case, I think for most of us, at some point in your life story, you have been burned by people in authority, right? Sometimes people in your family, people in, in a school setting, people in a work setting. And consequently, it is not surprising that um, I think culturally we live in a moment where there is decreasing trust in institutions. Government, church, corporations, higher education, and at times, we simply assume that people in power will use that power in self-serving ways. So my guess is, for instance, no matter where you are politically, at some point in the last decade, you have been concerned that the party in power will use that power inappropriately. So at times, we simply assume that people in power, people with authority, will abuse it. Furthermore, if, if we're honest, I think some of us have to admit that there have been times when we've abused or misused the power or authority in our own lives. And consequently, due to that experience, we may find ourselves pulling back from the idea of Jesus as king, Jesus in authority. Because you know what, I, don't, I just don't want to give away that authority. That's a little scary to me. But see, the author, the, author is using, the author is using this passage to say his authority is unlike any other authority you've ever seen. Because this is authority exercised in justice and righteousness. And again, I think he's going to unpack that more as we go through the book. So he's using these Old Testament quotes in a way that shows us Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David. He's worthy of praise. He's a righteous ruler. And then uh, a quote from Psalm 102 that stresses he is everlasting. And then, then you get kind of to the end of this chain of Old Testament quotes. And there's this citation from Psalm 110, verse 1. Um, a very important statement. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Interestingly, this verse is the Old Testament verse quoted the most times in the New Testament. And it highlights the reality that Christ is now enthroned in heaven. 
And coming to grips with what the author is saying here helps us understand kind of the world in which we live. We live in a world where Christ is seated in authority, but God is still making his enemies into a footstool. So what the author is doing in this book is reminding us of Jesus in all his majesty and wonder. And he's saying to you, look, I don't want you... I don't want you to drift. So what I want to do, I want to bring you back to the reality of who Christ is. And when we put these things together, there's one other thing I want you to observe here, and that is this. When you kind of understand, here's the threat. The threat is drifting. And you understand the solution is staying focused on Jesus, right? Fixing your eyes on Jesus and a growing understanding of who he is and what he's done. When you see that as the solution, when you put together the problem and the solution, Here's something you you begin to understand. You begin to understand the reality that whenever we drift, in some sense, denial is part of the process. Do you see that? You, You really can't drift unless, in some sense, you're losing sight of who Christ is and what he's done. Drifting involves denial. And see, in my own life, I can just, hey, I've just gotten really busy, and, you know, so I can, you know, and, and maybe in the busyness, I've just gotten comfortable with certain sins, certain negative patterns of thinking or behavior, and I, maybe I just blame it on my circumstances. Look, I know this isn't the best thing to do, but if you were under the stress that I was under, you know, and I start to drift. And somehow in my drifting, I lose sight of the fact that Christ is the one who has come to deal with sin, ultimately and fully. And because he has come and seated at the right hand of the Father, we can can approach the throne of grace boldly. Or maybe my life has gotten complicated and in some sense it's just, you know, it's just kind of easy to drift, to be frustrated because my life is not unfolding as the way I anticipated. And so in some sense, I'm kind of giving up and giving in. And once again, in my thinking, I justify it. It's like, well, if you had the disappointment in, my, in your life that, that I have in my life, you'd be doing the same thing too. And, you know, I, I get that. But somehow in just kind of giving up or giving in and just allowing myself to drift, I'm... <laughs> You know, I'm losing sight of the way Hebrews describes him as the one seated with majesty and authority on high. And I lose sight of the fact that in light of his authority and power, he can be at work in even the surprising broken places of my life. So here's the author's challenge. He's saying, look, I'm showing you the wonder of Christ so that you don't drift. And if somehow you kind of find yourself over here, if somehow you kind of find yourself drifting away from God, come back to the truth. Don't live in denial. Recognize something better is already here. Don't drift. Let's pray together.
Gracious God, as we think about drifting, I think some of us, in different ways we've seen that in our lives, and maybe even as we've talked this morning, I think some of us, probably in honesty, would say, that's kind of how I felt spiritually over the last season or more recently. So with that in mind, I pray that your spirit would just echo the words of this passage deeply into our spirit. And Father, I pray that this word would just challenge us once again to see the wonder of Jesus Christ. The wonder of what he has done, the wonder of who he is, the wonder of what he is doing. And Father, I pray that that truth, even today, would just empower us. I pray it would draw us into worship. I pray it would embolden us. I pray it would encourage us so that we do not drift. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us this morning as we're continuing this journey through Hebrews. And as you go, we're going to have members of our prayer team available. And maybe even as we talked about drifting, maybe there's just kind of, you know, you're kind of just feeling that in some sense in your own life. And if that's the case, just know we want to pray with you and even kind of just encourage you in this moment. So we're going to be available here at the front if we can pray with you. So please take advantage of that. And now as you go, just go with this simple reminder from the book of Hebrews. Hold on to the truth. Hold on to what is truly at work in this world and do not drift. Amen.